Turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Uh, my, my dad uh, tells me a lot of stories about when he was growing up. He's a great storyteller. And um, uh, I've learned that when he was growing up, he had uh, each of his grandmothers lived with the family at different points in time. And one of his grandmothers would, would grab him before he left the house every day for school, and she would pull him aside and she'd say, Now, uh, remember, Denny, Jesus is with you. Which is, you know, perfectly good way to ruin a, a little boy's day. You know, even before it starts, all the things that you had planned for the day, now you have to filter those. Jesus is with me. Oh, okay, well, Jesus is with me. You know, uh, we've tried that technique on our kids a little bit. It hasn't really worked too well. You know, we've tried guilt and shame and comparison, all those great parenting techniques. You know, uh, sometimes, though, uh, with my dad anyway, it worked. Jesus is, is with you, she told him. And so that changed his perspective on everything changed his perspective on uh, his associations, on his choices, on uh, the words that he spoke. And as Christians, you know, when we really understand not just is Jesus with us, alongside us, but Jesus is in us. So everywhere we go throughout this community, every conversation we have, everything we look at, every decision that we make, Jesus is in us because we are in Christ. As soon as we begin to really understand and let our identity sink into us, it changes our perspective about all of life. Philippians is a, it's a perspective changing book. Philippians is one of my favorite books to study, one of my favorite books to teach, because it's all about Christ. Philippians is, it's all about Christ. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain because I will be with Christ forever. And so it's my hope as we study the book of Philippians, you know, maybe you've read Philippians a hundred times, but I'm, I am really praying that for us it would be a fresh book and it would be a book that really focuses our attention and our perspective on Christ. I want us to begin this morning, begin our semester study by looking at a little bit of uh, background of the book. I want you to read with me in chapter 3 and verse 5. We're going to begin by looking at the author, Paul. He says of himself, chapter 3, verse 5, that he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul was born in Tarsus. Uh, Tarsus was a Gentile city. It was a Greek city. It had been Hellenized. So he was exposed to uh, Greek literature and Greek language. He was proficient in Greek. You see that when you read Paul's writings in Greek. He writes Greek at a very high level. He uh, knew about Greek literature. He understood the writings of Greek poets. But he was born into a thoroughly Jewish household. He uh, was born into a Pharisaical household. His father was a Pharisee. Apparently, many of his family members were Pharisees, so at some point, somewhere between the ages of 12 and 20, they sent him to Jerusalem to study so that he could become a rabbi, and during his studies, he became a Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel, and Gamaliel was a disciple of Hillel, and Hillel was very broad in his learning. He focused their attention on Jewish scriptures, but also on the writings of the cultures around him. So Paul had a really broad education but he was uh, one of the strictest practitioners of Judaism in his day. He was a legalist. And we will um, look at that a little bit more as we get into chapter 3 later on in the semester. But I want you to turn back with me briefly to the book of Galatians. Keep your place here in Philippians and turn to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13. 
Paul says, you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Uh, As a Pharisee, Paul took a very strict interpretation of the law and when he saw this, this sect beginning to rise up that wasn't interpreting the law as he was and a sect that was proclaiming that this man named Jesus was actually God's anointed one, God's Messiah and, and many were beginning to follow. Even though this man had been crucified, he was in the grave, some were saying he had risen from the dead and they were following him and they were pulling away from the synagogue. Paul said that just can't happen and so he went after these members of the way And he began to persecute them, and he would have them arrested. He'd have them put in prison. Uh, He would have some of them put to death. He was there when Stephen was first martyred. They were laying, the men were laying their coats at, at Paul's feet, and he was approving this stoning of Stephen. He was so zealous, in fact, that he got permission from the Jewish leaders to go all around the country and to find the Christians, to bring them back to Jerusalem, have them either put in prison and prosecuted or put to death. And he was on a trip just like that to capture Christians as he was heading to Damascus and Jesus came and appeared to him and he appeared to him in a bright light and he pushed him to the ground. The, the, the glory of Christ was so, so powerful. It pushed him to the ground and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, I don't even know who you are. Who are you? Who are you? He said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And at that moment in time, Jesus Christ took Paul And he completely changed the direction of his life. He he turned him around completely. No longer a persecutor of Jesus Christ, he was a pursuer of Jesus Christ. He laid aside all else, everything else he left behind, and he pursued Jesus Christ, and he proclaimed Jesus Christ. And ironically, he became an apostle to the Gentiles, taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just to Jewish people, but to Gentile people, all around the Roman world, planting churches everywhere he went, writing letters to these churches, writing letters to churches that he'd never met before but wanted to visit. One of the places that he went was Philippi. He planted a church in Philippi. I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Since they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, they being uh, Paul and his uh, apostolic band, his church planting team, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Now I'll try to highlight this on both maps so you can see what we're talking about here. Um, this is present-day Turkey. It's Asia Minor, right? If you're over here, that's Turkey. This is the Galatian region, the Phrygian region. Paul is coming out of Tarsus. Actually, his home church is here in Antioch, right? Okay, Home church is here. They've sent him out. He goes back to his hometown, and he wants to preach the gospel in what's known as Asia or Asia Minor, but the Spirit says no, and the Spirit compels them to move on, and they come to Troas, okay? So let's keep reading. Chapter 16. Verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. So Paul moves on from Troas and he sails over here to Philippi. Philippi was an incredibly significant city in Paul's day. It was uh, a city that was uh, originally came out of the historical map in about 356 BC. Philip II of Macedon, whose father of Alexander the Great, conquered the city and he named it after himself. Right? Well, you know, if you're an emperor, you can do that. He names the city Philippi. Okay? It gets renamed later by uh, one of the Caesars, but it's this name Philippi sticks. Uh, later on in history, this is a place where there were several significant battles in Philippi or around Philippi, and. Um, one of the reasons it was so significant is that it was on what's called, known as the Via Ignatia. This is the main trade route that connected east and west in this region. So it was about six to eight miles from the sea in a very uh, rich, ground, rich, fertile area. Agriculturally, it also had gold and silver. It was on a main trade route. So it was a really significant city commercially, but it was also a very significant city because you'll notice here, as, Paul, as Luke writes in the book of Acts, that it was a Roman colony. When... Um, trying to remember my history here. Uh, Matt, you may have to step in. Um, it was uh, Octavian and Antony fighting against Brutus and Cassius. And Brutus and Cassius lost, right? We know that, and they both killed themselves. But Octavian and Anthony, Antony, they won the battle, and they took many of the Roman soldiers and Roman citizens, and they relocated them to Philippi, and they made Philippi a Roman colony. Now, that's significant uh, for many reasons. These citizens were given, or these people were given Roman citizenship. What that means is that they were governed by Roman law. There were not a lot of cities or colonies that were declared Roman throughout the world. This city was governed by Roman law, which meant they didn't have to pay taxes. They could not be tortured or imprisoned without a trial. They had a right to own and to sell property or land, and they could issue civil lawsuits. Now, we hear that and we think, what's the big deal? You know, we've lived with that our whole lives. But there were not a lot of people who lived in the Roman Empire who had these rights. So the citizens of Philippi were incredibly proud of their citizenship. And I want you to keep that in mind because that's going to be a major theme that we're going to trace here, this idea of citizenship and the rights of citizenship. Okay, So it's to this city that Paul goes and he plants a church. I want you to turn with me now, again, to Acts 16 and verse 13. It says, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside, and we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. So apparently in this city there were... um, There were some Greeks, there were a lot of Romans who had been relocated, there were people from uh, all around the world, it's a pretty pretty cosmopolitan city, and there were just a few Jews, there were not a lot of Jews, you had to have 10 men to constitute a synagogue, they apparently didn't have enough Jews to constitute a synagogue, he goes there and what does he find? He finds a group of women in prayer, not enough men for a synagogue, but he goes and these are God-fearing people, they're God-seeking people, probably some Jews and some Gentiles who've gathered for prayer and Paul begins to preach to them. Verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. 
So the church is planted in Philippi about 52, AD 52. First convert is Lydia. She's actually the first convert in Europe. And uh, Lydia and other women are going to have an enormously significant role in the planting of this church and in the furtherance of the gospel throughout this entire region. From the moment that they trust in Christ, this church, uh, rather unusually, becomes partners in the gospel with Paul. I want you to turn back with me to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So Paul goes from Philippi. His next stop is Thessalonica. He preaches the gospel in Thessalonica, and there aren't any of the other churches that he's worked with. This is his second missionary journey. Uh, besides the church in Antioch that has sent him out, it's this church in Philippi that immediately jumps on board and they begin, begin to send finances to help Paul in his apostolic efforts. Not only are they sending uh, money for evangelistic needs, but they're also helping other churches who are having financial needs. I want you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's writing to the Corinthian believers, and the Corinthian believers, remember, are, they're a group that are they're really struggling. They've got lots of spiritual gifts, but they're very uh, immature and immoral. They've got a lot of financial resources, but they don't give. They've got to be uh, coerced, almost, to give. And Paul takes the, the, the Philippian church, this church in, in Macedonia, and he uses them to shame the Corinthian believers, okay? That's what he's doing here in chapter 8. It says, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which was given in the churches of Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Paul says to this church in Corinth, look, I didn't, I didn't ask any money from you and I didn't have to because there were other churches that supported me so I could give the gospel to you. And these are churches, uh, this, is, this was a church in Philippi that was not a rich church, they were a poor church. But even though they were poor, they said, please, please, please let us give to you, Paul. Not out of their ability, he says, but out of their inability, out of their, their deep poverty flowed this generosity. So, Paul, when he finds himself in prison, about 10 years after planting this church, one of his most beloved churches, the church in Philippi, they hear that Paul is in prison and they send support for him. I want you to turn back with me to the book of Philippians in chapter 1, verse 12. Let's look at Paul's circumstances here. It says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. One of the primary purposes of this letter is it's a, it's a missionary prayer letter. It's a, it's a thank you letter to the Philippian believers for support. It is a, a progress report on the ministry. They have supported him and he wants them to know, here's what's happening with me as your missionary. 
And what has happened is Paul's been in prison. They hear about Paul's imprisonment. They send a financial gift by the hands of a man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus comes to Paul. He gives the financial gift. Then apparently Epaphroditus, uh, the money is not enough to continue to support Paul. So Epaphroditus uh, gets work there in Rome where Paul is in prison. And he's working so hard to support Paul while he's in prison that Epaphroditus gets sick. And he gets so sick that he's about to die. But God spares his life. And so Paul writes this letter as a thank you letter for their support, but also to let the Philippian believers know that one of their number, one of their their faithful men, Epaphroditus, he's okay. He writes the letter, he sends the letter by the hands of Epaphroditus so that this church can know Epaphroditus is okay. You don't need to worry about him, and I'm okay. okay. I'm in prison still, but the gospel is still going forth. So our missionary efforts continue even in prison. Those are some of the main purposes for which Paul writes. Now, I want you to look at one other verse with me in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. And I want to pick up this theme of citizenship that we mentioned earlier. Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. It says, our citizenship is in heaven. I think that this is uh, the unifying theme for the book. This is a group of people who thought it was so important that they were citizens of Rome. It was an incredibly privileged position. And Paul says to them, you have a much more important citizenship, and that's your citizenship in heaven. And when you begin to understand that your identity is in Christ, and Christ is at the right hand of the Father, so your citizenship is in heaven, it will change your perspective on all of life. Citizenship in heaven changes your identity. Citizenship in heaven changes your identity. Your fundamental identity now is that you are in Christ. And that will never change for all of eternity. Changes your perspective. Notice what he says here. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to encourage them to take their eyes off of their day-to-day circumstances and eagerly wait for their savior to be oriented continuously toward heaven. Changes your destiny. Our destiny is not to be placed into a box in the ground and our body decays. That's not our destiny. Our destiny is to be resurrected and to be made perfectly like Jesus Christ forever. That's what we talked about last semester. That's our destiny. And that's, that's where we're going to be for all of eternity. And if that's the case, that's going to change the way that we live. It's going to change the priorities that we have in this life. When you look at one other verse here in chapter 1 regarding citizenship, verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27 it says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I want you to write out in the margin, discharge your obligation as citizens. That word for conduct means discharge your obligation as citizens. It's from the root word for citizenship. These people knew what that verb meant. It meant be good citizens of Rome. And Paul says, no, I want you to discharge your obligation as citizens of heaven, as believers who are in Jesus Christ. Being citizens of heaven changes everything about you. I want us to begin to trace that theme by just looking briefly at the greeting this morning. We're just going to look at two verses, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 
What is the implication of being citizens of heaven, of being in Jesus Christ? Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a citizen of heaven, the first thing is that you're a slave of Jesus Christ. I don't know what translation you're working off of. I've got New American Standard, and it says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. You need to scratch that out, okay? If you've got servants in there, just scratch it out and write slaves. And write slaves, because that's a terrible translation. It's not a servant. A servant has a choice. A servant can call in sick. A servant gets paid. A servant has freedom. A servant can quit. The word is doulos, and it means slave. And not with, with all of the racial connotations that we have in our history as Americans, but nevertheless, it is a person without freedom. And it's a person who has one master. And Paul says to himself, we are slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul usually starts a letter, how does he identify himself? Paul what? What's, what's his description of himself normally? Apostle, right. But Paul doesn't talk about apostleship here. In the book of Galatians, Paul talks a lot about apostleship, doesn't he? He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not sent from the agency of man, not sent by human hands. I was sent by God. I was given my apostleship by God. Why does Paul emphasize his apostleship in the book of Galatians? You remember? What's Galatians about? I guess you better read Galatians this week. <laughs> Galatians is, is about they're screwing up the gospel. And that makes Paul really, really, really angry. And so he hammers them. He doesn't say, thank you for anything. He doesn't say, I praise you for anything. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're abandoning it for another gospel that's not really another You're leaving Christ. You're leaving grace. The greatest attack on the church is legalism. It is distortion of grace. And so Paul hammers him. So how does he start his letter? He says, I'm an apostle, so you better listen up. When he comes to the church in Philippi, he says, I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm one of you. He comes in in deep, deep humility because this is a church that was partnering with him in the gospel. And this is a church, they didn't have a lot of major, major issues Now, they had some things that were brewing, and Paul's going to give them uh, some warnings and some exhortations, but they didn't have major problems in this church, and Paul comes and he lays himself low, and he says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, and I'm a slave of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Why don't you keep your place here in Philippians and turn back to Acts again, chapter 16. Remember that after Paul preached to this group on the riverside and Lydia and her family believed the message. Then Paul was walking through the city and as he's walking through the city and he's having conversations here and there, there's a slave girl that's following after him and she's possessed by demons and these demons are somehow enabling her to do some fortune telling and her master's making a lot of money off of this. But this, this, this young woman is following after Paul and she keeps crying out and she's interrupting Paul and it says literally in the text that Paul's annoyed. He's really annoyed. This is annoying. So he says, demons come out. You know, it's not, you don't sense this great compassion from Paul toward this woman. He's just, he's annoyed. And so he heals her. And now that she's healed, she can't tell fortunes any longer and her master becomes really angry. 
This is what happens. Verse 22 says, The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates, magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And this is Paul and the men who were working with him. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Uh, What do you know about Roman citizenship? That's against the law. Is Paul a Roman citizen? Yes, he is. Okay, he was born into his citizenship. The Romans had placed a a large Jewish population in Tarsus, apparently to uh, influence the commerce in that city. Uh, Paul's relatives had been placed into that city, and they had received Roman citizenship. So Paul was born as a Roman citizen, and now Paul is being uh, beaten publicly, and he's thrown into prison. He doesn't receive a a trial. Does Paul say anything about it? Okay, Paul could have stopped the beating. Do you realize that? Can we, I, try to picture it in your mind's eye for a moment here. They're taking sticks and, and they're beating Paul. And they're beating him on his back. They're beating him on his head. They're beating him on his legs. All he's got to say is, I'm a Roman citizen. But he intentionally takes the beating. He doesn't always do that. There are other times when he claims his citizenship. As a matter of fact, he's in prison now in Rome because he said, I appeal to Caesar. Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. But this time in Philippi, he wants to demonstrate what it means to be a slave of Christ. He sacrifices his rights. He has a right, and he says, I relinquish it. This is a huge issue for Paul. Citizens of heaven sacrifice their rights for Christ. This is a huge issue for us as Americans. We, we love our rights. We guard our rights jealously. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, one of my privileges of being an apostle is that I don't have to claim my rights. I can, sa- I can sacrifice my rights. Why? I become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do it so that people can know Christ. And he, he exhorts the Corinthian believers. He says, what are you doing? You people, all that you do is you just cling to your rights. And what's the result? You dishonor Christ. In chapter 6, he, he tells them specifically, he says, I hear that, that you're going into court against one another. There are lawsuits against one another. He says, why not rather be longed? Why not lose your entire fortune and have Christ promoted through your church? That's a, that's a huge change in perspective, isn't it? If any of us were faced with a lawsuit right now, if we, if, if we were wronged by someone and our family fortune was at risk, can you say deep down, it's a believer in Christ, somebody in, in this fellowship, in this church, and you know that it's going to get drugged into the courts and might be in the papers and two believers fighting it out in court and it get nasty. Would you set it aside? Would you sacrifice all of your money for Jesus? When you realize that your citizenship is in heaven and you have immeasurable wealth right up there. It's, you can't even comprehend how wealthy you are, and it's guarded by Christ. And nothing can touch it. Not a lawsuit, not a dip in a stock market, nothing. Nothing can touch that wealth. And you believe that deep down, then you're not so worried about guarding. Guarding your rights. What Paul is trying to do for them, he's trying to reinforce or to shift their perspective 
that all of life is about Christ. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so Paul comes to them and he says, I'm a, I'm a slave of Christ on your behalf. And then he turns to them and this is how he addresses them. He says, and you are saints in Christ. Let's read in Philippians 1 again. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, you are saints in Christ. When you hear the word saint, what comes into your mind? Last night I was uh, in church, Saturday night at church, I asked that question and somebody said, well, dead people, right? <laughs> Can't be a saint until you're, you're, you die. What comes into your mind? You hear the word saint. Okay, obedient. Okay, uh, I hear uh, boring, you know, they don't get to do much that's fun. Uh, some, certainly this elite that I probably will never join, um, that's what I, it comes to my mind. The word really, it, literally, it's a holy one. It means one who is set apart, a one who's distinct, set apart. Uh, this last week I was reading Exodus in my quiet times. It's interesting to me how sometimes God will take what I'm reading personally and will pull it into a message. I want to give you an illustration of what it means to be a saint from Exodus, Turn with me to chapter 33, verse 15. Chapter 33, remember, um, Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he got the stone tablets, and um, while he's gone, Aaron makes the golden calf, and they commit idolatry, and they're having a big party. Uh, it's idolatrous, it's, it's gluttonous, it's, it's a horrible thing. He comes down, he sees this happening, and he throws the stone tablets down, and they break symbolizing the people have broken the covenant. And God says to Moses, you know what, Moses, I'm through with them. I'm just going to wipe all them out and I'll start over with you. What do you think about that? He's testing Moses and Moses says, oh God, I don't don't think that's a good idea. What will the nation say? That you brought your people out into the wilderness just to kill them? Lord, that's not good for your reputation. Stick with them, God, please, please stick with them. Stay with them. Look in verse 15. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? That's what it means to be a saint. You are distinguished from all the other people on the face of the earth because you are in Christ. That's a saint, a holy one, one set apart. Look over in chapter 34. Uh, Moses has, has seen the glory of God from behind. Remember, he's in the cleft of the rock and God removes his hand and declares his glory, his name. Chapter 34, uh, verse 8. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. Make us your holy ones, even though, God, I know I'm trying to lead your people and they are so stubborn, they are so sinful, but please still make us distinct. A saint doesn't necessarily mean that that we're better than anybody else. But if you are in Christ, you're a saint because you belong to God. That's what makes you a saint. By the grace of God, you are in Christ. How does that happen? Through your own effort? No, not at all. Paul says of himself, he says, you know, as to the law, I was found blameless. I I kept 
every commandment of the law, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss, I've set them aside so that I can have Christ. And I want to have a righteousness not found in the law. I want to have a righteousness that is from Christ, a righteousness that, that is Christ's righteousness that I receive through faith. It's a borrowed righteousness. My own righteousness falls short of the glory of God. I need his righteousness. The moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, God takes you and he removes the debt of your sin and he places you in Christ. It is a gift. And that forever changes your identity. You are now a citizen of heaven. And it's a gift. You can't earn it. And you can't lose it. You can't remove yourself from Christ. You don't have the power to do that. It is a forever gift. You belong to him. That is the doctrine of eternal security. No created thing can remove you, even you yourself. You cannot get out of Christ. You are a saint. Should you live differently? Of course. Of course you should. You should begin to live like Jesus Christ. And progressively, that's what God is doing in our lives. He's providing the resources to do that, and we're going to talk about that as we go through the book of Philippians. But if you are a saint in Christ, you have been set apart. You're different. You're distinct. Third group he addresses are the leaders of the church. Turn with me again back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. To all the saints who are in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, you are saints in Christ Jesus, but you're also in Philippi. And if you're in Philippi, then you've been left in Philippi for a reason. What is that? To become like Christ. Okay, to pursue Christ. And to proclaim Christ. Your priorities have been changed. He addresses the servant leaders. He addresses two groups, the elders and the deacons. Okay, the, the overseers. Uh, the term elder, there, there are two words for elder in, uh, in the New Testament. One is uh, elder, which the implication is mature. Okay? The other is overseer, which has to do with the function of the elders. But it's interesting here that he says the elders, uh, this group, along with the saints. He doesn't point to the fact that the elders are over the church. Are the elders over the church? Yes. In a sense, are we all in submission to our elders? Yeah. Uh, every once in a while, my son will ask me, say, well, buddy, Daddy, are you, the, are you the boss of the church? I <laughs> said, no, buddy, I'm not the boss. The elders are the boss of the church. And it's usually in the context of conversation where I'm trying to get him to submit to me. You know, I have to prove to him that I have to submit to somebody too, buddy. That's how life works, right? We all submit somewhere. Are you the boss? No, the elders are the boss. We all are in submission to their authority. But Paul doesn't emphasize that issue here. He talks about them just being alongside of. Because they're called to be servant leaders. What's their role? To guard and protect the flock. Peter talks about this. He says, don't exercise your authority in an overbearing way. Peter learned this from Jesus. He said, don't do it like the Gentiles do, lording it over, but be an example to the flock. Protect the flock. There were, there were threats of legalism in this church that we'll talk about later. There, was, uh, there were threats of uh, internal dissension, disunity in the church. There were threats of persecution. And the elders had to come alongside and they had to protect the flock. And it's interesting to me that uh, this idea of, of overseer was used of Jesus. First Peter chapter 2, he's called the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. The term deacon is literally servant. That term is used of Jesus. And so overseer is used of Jesus. Uh, minister or deacon or servant, that's used of, of Jesus. The term holy one 
That's yours used of Jesus. He's the Holy One of Israel. The term slave, that's used of Jesus. Okay, all the terms that are used of these people in this church in Philippi are also used of Jesus. And the point is that we are supposed to imitate Jesus. Servant leaders, overseers, elders, deacons, saints, holy ones, slaves of Jesus Christ. The point of Philippians is to focus us on Christ. Imitate Christ. Pursue Christ. Proclaim Christ. This is an incredibly focusing book for us. This semester, what I want us to do is I just want us to flood our minds with the book of Philippians. So I'm going to give you a a challenge. Uh, I gave our our members this challenge at our business meeting last week. I want to issue it to the whole church. I want to challenge you to memorize the book of Philippians. (laughs) laughs. I'm serious. Yeah, you can do this. Um, I think personally that memorizing big chunks is easier than memorizing, you know, a verse and a reference, a verse and a reference. I always forget the reference. I I have a hard time putting all that together. But when you memorize a chunk, you begin to get in the flow. Okay. So uh, I I realized I got to offer an incentive system here. I'm going to give an incentive. The first 10 people who memorize the whole book of Philippians, we're all going to go out to lunch on me. Okay, I'm buying lunch for the first 10 who memorized the whole book. So you got all semester, I figured it's about a verse a day. And about it's eight verses a week. Sunday's a real spiritual day, do two on Sunday. <laughs> and this week I'm only going to give you one. Okay, you only have one verse to memorize. It's Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. This is kind of a, a synthesizing verse for the book. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That is, discharge your obligations as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We want to be like the Philippian church. We want to be like that. Striving together with one mind for the faith of the gospel, saying, for to us to live is Christ. That's what we're about. All other things fade because we're focused on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use this book to uh, refresh or uh, to focus our attention for the first time on living fully for Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would, uh, in that process, cause all earthly attractions just to begin to, to fade and Christ to shine and we would be attracted to him and drawn to him. Father, I pray that you would flood our minds with the truth of Christ for to us to live as Christ. Father, I pray that you would change our perspective toward everything. I pray, Father, that you would unify us around that. Unify us around Jesus Christ. Change us individually and as a church through the power of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so remember, next week, chapter 1, verse 27.